My name's uh, Tim Barker. It's my wife, Katie, and I uh, have the privilege of opening uh, God's Word with you today. Uh, <clears throat> as we jump into this text of, of Acts, uh, really one of the main things I want you to get out of today is to have a better understanding of who God is and what he's like. What is this God of the Bible, the God who's created the world? How does he interact with us as people? And what does he do in this world? So as we look at this passage, those are the kind of the key walkaway feelings I want you to have an understanding about God as we look into this passage together. There's going to be a lot of things for us to look through and spend time here, but that's our goal. And uh, we're going to pray that God do that during this time and, uh, and help us with this. So if you'll pray with me. God, I thank you uh, for the chance to open your word. I pray you would meet with us. We desire to hear from you in this text, in our lives where we live right now. And we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand more of who you are, God, uh, in your name. Amen. So one of the strangest things about humanity is our obsession with thinking and talking about our coming death. Yes, I I mentioned death. I know it's usually a topic we kind of skirt around, only bring it up when absolutely necessary. Uh, The author of Hebrews puts it this way and says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Ben Franklin, uh, of course, put it, in the world, nothing can be more certain except death and taxes. So we know death is coming, and we often spend time thinking about it and maybe our preferred types of death. But really, uh, sometimes it can be very unlikely what we talk about and fear in our lives will actually happen. So I don't know if you're familiar with one of these interesting agencies of our government, like the National Safety Council. Have you, have you heard about them? They put out an annual odds of dying list. Fun, fun reading, let me assure you. Uh, when you look into this, it talks about statistical averages over the entire U.S. population. And it's interesting how fearful we are of some of these things, and yet they're pretty unlikely to happen. For example, uh, about 1 in 174,426 people will be killed by a lightning strike. So you think about all the advice you've ever given your kids, all the time you yourself are a little bit frightened in the lightning, if we're all honest, right? 1 in 174,426 chances of of you dying by a lightning strike. Uh, Legal execution, the chances are 111,439. Plane crashes, right? There are big concern, especially when you're first on there and they're going through all the safety precautions. You're putting your belt on. You're like, I know how to put on a seatbelt. I I do it kind of every day, but still, I'm going to pay really close attention. 96,566, one in that number will will die by a plane crash. Uh, How about a firearm discharge accidentally? Uh, That'll be one in 7,944. Not too often. You think about how much digital ink is spilt over these types of concerns, lightning, capital punishment, plane crashes, accidental firearm discharge, yet the odds aren't very high. What is scary is when we start talking about what people commonly die from. So when you look at the rest of this chart, it says, okay, one in 672 people will die in a pedestrian incident. That made me think twice about walking to church this morning, let me tell you. One in 358 will be assaulted by a firearm, which is hard to believe. One in 133 will die by a fall. One in 113, a motor vehicle crash. One in 103, unintentional poisoning or exposure to noxious noxious substances. One in 27, chronic lower respiratory disease. And one in seven, 
dying from heart disease or cancer. As I said, some of this is sort of funny and abstract when you start talking about lightning strikes and, you know, planes are actually pretty safe to fly on. But then when you talk about some of these other areas where it's actually pretty likely that uh, those of us in this room are going to die from some of these causes, it starts to get a little bit scary, a little bit more disturbing about our lives. Then kind of our different personalities come in. Some of you immediately forgot everything I just said, and you're already thinking about lunch again, which is awesome, right? That's gone up. Some of the rest of you are thinking, huh, I kind of have some of that in my family history. Maybe I should go have that other exam that we talked about. Okay, you're starting to plan your checklist. Others of you are probably thinking, okay, I'm going to redouble my efforts. We're going get, to get on that plan for healthy living. I'm going to be all over my kids now, making sure about crossing the street. I always knew it was a good idea to look both ways. Now I'm sure it is. Okay, we have these different responses. They all come to our mind. But despite all of this, what, what I want to do is take us back in this passage that Katie just read to us earlier and understand from the life of Paul how confident he was in who God is and what he does changes the way a follower of Jesus thinks about mortality. When you think about the fact that we're going to die, and the one odd that we don't ever put in here, right, is there's actually a 100% chance we're going to die unless Jesus returns. So when you think about your death, it's something that we're all contemplating every day. It's something that comes up. It's something that crosses our mind within the week, sometimes jokingly, sometimes in more reality. And yet when we see what Paul is saying here in this passage, he was someone whose life was changed by Jesus in such a way that he could be confident even in the face of death. Now, there weren't quite uh, the established professions of data scientists, actuaries, economists, and life insurance salesmen in the time of Paul. So we don't have a great list of exactly what were the common deaths of that time. But we can tell from antiquity that shipwrecks were definitely a common way of dying and were one of the worst ways to die. Um, There was no guarantee when you stepped on a boat that you were going to get where you thought you were or that you were going to arrive in one piece. And so as Paul is getting on the ship, and Katie read a lot of it, there's a lot of places and things going on there. Hopefully you caught the drift. There's some bad storm going on there, and Paul is unclear what's happening. And the people along with him for the ride are also caught up in this terrible storm. But what I want to walk away with is one essential truth from Paul's life, which is this that echoes for us as well. You are invincible until God is finished with you. I want to say it again. You're invincible in this life until God is finished with you. Now, despite the odds, despite the darkest of circumstances, God is in control and you're invincible until God determines it's the end of your life. So as we look through this this lengthy passage here in chapter 27 of Acts, we're going to look at Paul's direct speech. About three times he actually speaks into the narrative and you get a little bit of a look into how he is approaching this scary situation of being on a boat in the middle of a storm and impending death. And we're going to see from that, that as we have those same actions that we can pull out from his speech, we can echo and sort of shout to the world how we know and can be confident that we're invincible until God says our life is over. So as you have the passage open, hopefully in Acts 27, just going to give you a quick rundown of what's happening because there's a little bit of distance here and kind of culture and time period. So I need to bridge that gap a little bit so you catch everything that's happening here. So at this time that Paul's getting on the boat, uh, we've, we've moved on from last sermon. If you heard uh, Matt Moran talking about that, kind of this time of waiting, the wasted years, stuck there. If you've been here for a few weeks, you've heard a lot of trial stuff, a lot of sitting around. Well, now Paul's on the boat. He's going to Rome. It's all movement now through the end of the book. 
He's not getting on a passenger ship. There really aren't passenger ships at the time period here of Paul. There's just commercial ships that sometimes take on passengers to make some extra money. A traveler would, would get on, would go down to the docks and he'd be saying, hey, who's going to Rome? Anybody going to Rome? Anybody going to Rome? Uh, and try to find a ship who's willing to take him on and hopefully the price is right. There's no boardroom, no stateroom, no wonderful buffet, uh, like a carnival cruise here. Basically, you bring your own food. Probably it's going to spoil most of the trip. You get on the ship, and if you're lucky, you can stay below deck. If not, the more common thing is to sleep on a tent on the deck of the ship while it goes across the Mediterranean. Talk about another view of camping. That's, uh, that's quite a rough ride. One of the best, best possible routes is the one that Paul's taking from Alexandria to Rome. The ships were well-built. They had the best crews because that was the most lucrative uh, thing that you could do as a sailor, to be floating grain from Egypt over to Rome. So the best people wanted to be a part of it. And what they did, if you heard, heard Katie mentioning Lee a lot, which is kind of a strange thing to, to read in the passage, what they did is in sailing, they stayed really close to land. Okay, They weren't going to go too far away from the land. They were going to kind of stay within that blocking them during most of their travel. And they were propelled only by wind through this. Uh, and really the difference in how this voyage went came down to your time of year and your weather. Two things you sort of didn't have a lot of control over. Uh, and they could make your voyage go from two weeks in duration to two months in duration. And you don't know what's happening. So that's the backdrop of where Paul's at. I just want us to set that stage. It's not like he's on a harbor cruise, booze, booze cruise, or anything like that. This is a crazy ride. And he's going, not of his own will, he's under the care of a centurion, ready to give his words to Rome. Superstition abounded in the ship trade because, as I said, there's no guarantees. And Paul is facing his own mortality and those around him are as well. So how does Paul respond? Well, let's look at what he says in this passage. So if you look at your Bibles in chapter 27 of Acts, in verse 10, Paul speaks for the first time in this passage. He says, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. What we have here is not some kind of special revelation that Paul received. What this is, is Paul is a seasoned traveler, and he's going, guys, this is a bad idea for us to sail right now. Pay attention to what I'm saying. So the first thing we see about how we approach our lives, our mortality, even though we know God is in control and he has made us invincible until he's done with us, is that we're supposed to use common sense, good judgment, okay? We should be safe when possible and influence others to do the same. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, guys, this is not the right time to get on a boat and set sail across the Mediterranean. I, I know this stuff, so pay attention to what I'm saying. He knows that, uh, as it says kind of in verse 9, that the fast is over. This means that probably this is late September or at the most late October. Anyone who sails in ancient times only sailed from May to early, early October. So they're starting to stretch into that time period where it's not going to be safe to travel. It's going to be winter. But they paid more attention to what the ship's pilot said. And so they got on the ship and they went there. As they get along in this, this terrible travel, they're going to have to face the decision of where are we going to winter? Where are we going to wait for the storm? And one of their decisions is, should we, should we stop off here? It's not a great place. Should we keep going to another? Sort of like, okay, if I could spend the whole winter in New Orleans or Galveston, where would you pick? Okay, you're going to pick New Orleans. That's where I'm going to stay. Okay, they're going to try to get to a better location for their, for their time. It doesn't mean, uh, as he's going through this, that they're trying, that Paul is encouraging to put their, their selves at risk constantly. Even though God has made you invincible until he's gone, done with your life, it doesn't mean that we constantly put ourselves in a position 
where only God can save us. It makes sense that we use caution and what we call biblical wisdom. Okay, biblical wisdom is using uh, what we can see in the world, what we know about how God created the world, and aligning it with what we have in the Bible and trying to live as close to that as possible. The way that God has designed the world is as we do that, the closer we live to God's world, we proverbially, typically have a good life. Okay? As we do that, it usually works that way. The Proverbs are full of that. If you know, if you answer a fool, you're going to be caught in the folly, right? It's kind of how it works in the world. It doesn't mean every single time you talk to a person that's a fool, it's going to work out this way. There's these different challenges. It means that we as believers, as we continue to follow God's commands and are safe and loving and care for our families, do certain uh, commands within Scripture, we typically will live a good life. It'll work out fine for us. We'll be safe. Even unbelievers who live close to biblical principles, right? Working within a family, loving their children, doing these kinds of careful things that are normal parts of life, usually things are going to work out okay. I was sitting in Starbucks working on this, and I was seeing uh, lots of parents uh, walking their kids across the streets. And it's interesting because Melrose isn't a particularly busy city, right? But still, that crosswalk is sort of treacherous right in front of Starbucks because it does require the driver to actually be looking in front of them and not on their phone or looking out the window or anything else. And so you can see all the parents grabbing their kids, and they start to kind of break their way out into the crosswalk. And there's always like one of the kids as they get older that's kind of going to do their own thing, and the dad's trying to pull them back in. Okay, that's like a totally normal human response. But as parents show that love for their children, desire to protect them, they're exhibiting similar biblical wisdom. They're showing, hey, this is how God has built the world. This is how God has made families. I love my kids. I take care of them. Obviously, as a Christian parent, you've got a whole lot more to worry about to protect and love your children from than just crossing the street. That's going to be a divergence at points between how that wisdom has played out in our lives. But the point is, is while we're going through life, We are to be driving the Christian ethic of preserving life. Uh, It's the highest ideal of the Christian ethic. It's the preservation of life eternal and then life temporal. It's simple to understand, but this application can be really tricky. As Christians, we should be trying to use our wisdom to think, how can I save life? Save life in my family so they're not hurt. Save life in the world. And that includes not only just our temporal lives, but also encouraging people so they can believe and trust in Jesus later in life. So reckless behavior Some quick examples from my life, like shooting BBs with slingshots at your friends, is a bad idea. That's not safe. Okay, Driving a car from the back seat instead of the front seat is not a safe thing to do. It's reckless behavior. There's no encouragement from Scripture to live that way because God's going to take care of you. Or, you know, continuing to live unhealthily in what you eat, not caring for things like savings, insurance, those types of things. There's no part of Scripture that's encouraging you to live that recklessly because you're invincible under God. So Paul demonstrates here a biblical warrant for what your mom always told you, okay? Basically, live smart, take care of things, look look both ways when you cross the street. Paul has that same idea. He's telling that kind of wisdom to the people that are around him. But some things are out of your control, right? I've said that Paul's not, again, on a leisure cruise. He's being taken by a centurion. The centurion's making the call, yeah, yeah, we're going in the storm. Sometimes we're going to be in circumstances where you're not in the driver's seat. You're not determining this is the risk I want to take. Sometimes you're placed in those circumstances. So how does Paul respond then next? If you go down the chapter to verse 21, you see the next time that, verse, uh, that Paul speaks here in this verse. Paul stood up among the men. He says, men, you should have listened to me. A little bit of I told you so here, yes. And not set sail from Crete and incurred the injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life amongst you. And then he goes on to explain 
um, what, what's happened here and the fact that he's received this message from the Lord. So from verse 10, where Paul's saying, guys, I think this is a bad idea, to verse 21, when he's given them this view of God's control and care of the situation, a lot's been happening. They went from kind of this peaceful southern wind to a nor'easter. Pretty sure we're familiar with the nor'easters around here, right? So you know what that's like. A little different part of the world, happening a little bit differently, but it's that same concept, that kind of super storm blowing on this boat that was definitely not built for that kind of winds. So what they end up doing is stop trying to press forward to Rome. They actually try to reverse the ship and just let the wind push them a little bit. Maybe that's the better approach. They start chucking stuff overboard. So this cargo, hey, there's a loss for that. I'd rather have my life than this cargo. Let's chuck it off. They even go to the point of taking some of the rigging, some of the ropes, the things associated with the, the mast and the hauling of the ship, and they throw those overboards. They, they've taken some, some of those ropes, and they've actually tied them around the boat to try to hold the pieces of it together. If that happens to you on a Boston Harbor cruise, you're in serious trouble, okay? So this is important. They know that they're getting blown around, they're beat up. These are experienced sailors, some of the best of the ancient world that are part of this, and they are basically saying, we know we're going to die. We're pulling out all the stops. It doesn't matter the cost. This is a bad situation for us to be in. They think if there's any way that we can throw more things off the ship, lift it up a little higher out of the water so the water stops uh, falling over the decks and, and sinking us, or the wind doesn't keep smashing us to break this boat apart, maybe there's a chance. Maybe we can hold on. But that's where we're at. And then Paul stands up and he says, so guys, I kind of told you this, uh, this was a bad idea, right? So you can imagine how that's immediately received. But then he follows that with this great promise from God. As he brings this to them, he's received a special message from an angel that night that God has promised no lives will be lost, but the ship's going to be lost and run aground. And the reason is because Paul has to stand before Caesar to give an account. Wow. I mean, that's, that's kind of a big promise when you think about it. I mean, Paul's got to be like, okay, like I knew I was supposed to be heading to Rome. That makes sense. That's you really want me to go to Rome because this is not a very good circumstance to be expecting to make it to the other side of. And yet God's told me it's going to happen. Think about those sailors who aren't believing. They're like, we've been doing this for a while. This is the kind of storm you don't come back from. We're all dead. What is this guy up here telling us that this God told him that we're going to make it to the other side? This guy's crazy. And why are we listening to this guy? He's a prisoner. This seems ridiculous that he's talking to these experienced sailors on the ship. So Paul has received this divine promise of of survival, but that's pretty different than what we get, right? It's pretty seldom that you receive an explicit divine promise that you're going to be safe. Doesn't happen very often, but we're not left to wonder, does God care for us? Will God protect us? No, we're given general theological guidance that regarding regarding our lives, they're under the protection of God. Undergirding every moment of our lives is the reality that God is in control. He's an all-wise and an all-loving God, a sovereign, a king over this world. His control stretches from the largest galactic rotations to the supernova star, star deaths to the planetary orbits and rotations in outer space. God's control of our earth spans the atmospheres from the troposphere to the thermosphere and even climactic changes. God's reign is over geopolitical and economic situations from north to south and east to west across our gland. His care and control extends to the infinitesimal movements of atoms and subatomic particles like quarks. 
And then his care for you isn't just a surface thing on your skin and caring just what you can see on the outside. God cares about your interior organs. He cares about the cells deep within us that are reading our DNA and the nucleotide base pairs that God created and sustains within us. So when you think of all the things that can be wrong with you, all the things that can hurt you, all the things that can kill us, God is in control of every variable every situation in our lives. So there's no moment when we are outside of God's control. He has had a plan for us from the beginning, not only for our births, but also for our eventual deaths. It's as impossible for a character in your favorite novel to die without the author knowing than it is for you to get off this earth without God choosing it to happen. As we think about it, God, as we think about this, we'd think God would want us to live forever, probably. I mean, that might be our assumption. We think, you know what? I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to share the the gospel with people. Maybe you're really passionate following God, learning about him. We would think maybe God would want us to do that, extend our lives for many years. And yet God's wisdom is not what ours is. It's so often quite a bit different from the snuffing short of the life of Stephen in the book of Acts to Prevent, excuse me, to the preservation of Paul to the time of Rome, to even the prearranged death of his son Jesus. His decisions are different than we would think they should be. We may think it includes things in our lives, things that we're going to accomplish in the future, in our later years, in our golden years, that we think God wants us to do. They may be quite a bit different than that, is actually what God has designed for us. Paul and his aspirations for Spain. We think about Uh, other things that missionaries and others have tried to accomplish. You think, why was that life cut short? Did you hear about Jameson and Catherine Powell's? They were both uh, 29 years old, members of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. They were traveling on I-80 with their three small children, all under four years old, to Littleton, Colorado, for a month of missionary training before heading to Japan to do mission work this fall. Just a couple Sundays ago, on Sunday, July 31st, their minivan was rammed by a semi-trailer, causing both vehicles to combust, and the entire Powell's family died at the scene. Um, I've actually wept a few times over this because, uh, for different reasons, but as we think about the situation, it's, it's compelling to think that they're doing what God wants them to do, and yet God ends their life. I think that powerful message is convicting when we know there's times when we're not following God and God has given us another day. His mercy has extended to us even further. We would assume it would be good for this family to get this training and spend their lives in Japan sharing the gospel. And yet that's not what God chose to do in this situation. So as his grieving fam- this grieving family of theirs has testified multiple times to the media that God had a plan, that God is in control, and he has loved them and done so much in them. It's a compelling argument for us to see our own lives in the same way. We can live confidently, and we can live with full risk, knowing that we're invincible until God says we're done. We don't know when that's going to be. We can make the plans. We can continue to follow God. But it's when God decides that our lives are coming to an end. So Paul's final time speaking in our passage, 
in the shipwreck scene shows that we can, can do the, what we can do if we're living wisely, right? So we're trying to avoid pain, suffering, un, unnecessary risk when we can, right? Additionally, when we're put in these trialing circumstances and we are impacted and can be scared, we know God is in control and can bring us through those. But why is it so important that we're confident? Why is it so important that we trust God in those circumstances? We see this in Paul at the very end. Because when we do that, we can care for others in the midst of fearful crises because of our confidence in God. So look at verses 31 to 34. Paul's again speaking. He says, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So then the soldiers cut away the ropes. They stay in the boat. Verse 33, as the day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having, take, having taken nothing, nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. So here is this crazy boat scene, water sloshing over the side, the boat ready to come apart. Paul's saying, guys, let's all be safe. We need to stay on the ship. Actually, none of you guys have eaten. I don't know if you've noticed that. Let's take some time. Let's eat. This is what's good for you. I don't know if you've ever been on a plane that had any kind of turbulence uh, at all. People start getting really scared for themselves. They don't care about the, the uh, flight attendants. They don't sometimes care about other people in their party, their coworker two, two aisles over. And I'm just talking about light turbulence where the seatbelt comes back on and people get kind of scared. They're like, get out of my way. I need to get back to my seat. Can you imagine in this difficult ship circumstances, Paul's attention is immediately drawn from his own life and looking at others. He's propelled in love toward these other people because of his confidence in God. Paul knows, yeah, it's a little crazy right now. I might be a little seasick myself in this, right? But it doesn't matter. God's told me I'm going to make it. God's going to take care of me till it's my end. So I can spend my time loving and caring for the people around me. This isn't the last meal in Paul's mind. It's not a rearranging decks on the Titanic. This is a faith-filled confidence propelled in love towards others. This is the confident action of Christians throughout the ages in the midst of crisis. It's on display when a believer in the midst of cancer is having harsh and draining chemotherapy or the inconvenient and perpetual dialysis. And while doing this, they're loving and encouraging those around them. They're looking for people that they know. Why? Because their hope's in God. They don't have to worry about the outcome. Yes, I have to go through this process. I have to go through this experience. Not enjoyable. No one's saying that. But there's a different level from someone who has their confidence in God that I can actually look to others and impact those with my life in this difficult circumstance. It's the difference that you see in, in a businessman who's traveling and the talk that he has around terrorism and flight risk. There's a confidence that those around him do not have. Something that you can compellingly say to others, I'm not worried what's going to happen. If this is the end, I know what's going to happen. I'm confident that this is what I need to do. Not a necessary risk but doing what you have to do in the next thing and knowing that God has your future taken care of. It's this kind of confidence in the face of terrorism, natural disasters that can drive Christians to love their neighbors. It's that deep-rooted confidence and faith and beating love for others. In these times when fear is what comes to us most naturally, we can reach out to God for him to bolster our faith and be able to reach out and love those around, those, around us in those moments. So it's this action of faith in God that lets our invincibility, that God is in control of our situation in the face of our ever-present mortality. 
So in, in conclusion, just kind of coming to a few key points, how do we walk away from this, okay? What does this do for me? Number one, I can have confidence to be on mission if I have my hope in God. And I know that my life is going to last as long as God's going to let it happen. Then I can be confident in mission. Whether God sends me to an angry neighbor or a problem in the city or a different city where it's a little bit rougher or a different place in the world like we've seen. We know that God is in control. There's totally fine in taking those risks for the sake of the mission. It's appropriate to take those risks with ourselves and our own lives, as well as with our families for the sake of sharing the gospel. It's a testimony that we believe that God is faithful. It's the idols of comfort and safety and the call to risk aversion instead of gospel living and trusting God. We're sometimes hesitant to do what God is calling us to do because of that fear that it might disrupt our safety and our security of ourselves or our family. We fall short of being obedient to the mission we've been called to do at times because of that. So we can look at the example from Paul here and know this is something I have to repent of. I need to be turning to put my confidence in God that he's in control and I can be confident to be on mission. Secondly, this gives us stability and hope in our mortality. There's going to be moments in our lives when we're going to be more aware of our death. It's going to be at the time the diagnosis comes in. It's going to be in the moments when you've had another birthday and you kind of stop thinking they were fun and you feel the pain. You see those continuing to come year after year. It's going to be when you're at the funeral of a loved one, maybe somebody younger than you, and you've sat there and you've grieved with the family, someone that you didn't know would be passing. These are the moments that death is coming to your mind. And what you need to be saying in those moments as a Christian is your mind is turned to say, I know God's in control. Yes, this is sad. Yes, this is difficult. Those things are very natural and a part of our life. But I know my confidence is in God, and I can trust even in this that God will carry me to where I'm supposed to be, to the time that I'm supposed to be living to. That's a testimony that isn't heard often. Lies of chaos and chance uh, drive us to fears of the future. We personify the unknown as if it's going to get us, and God isn't capable of protecting our futures. We fear planes. We fear our known diseases from taking us too soon. Or we fear that we, of what we haven't been diagnosed with yet. And yet death isn't a matter of chance. It isn't a mistake. It isn't terrible chaos in our world or some impersonal action done to us. Death is something allowed by God to mark the end of our lives here. God is in control. Finally, as I've been mentioning, love and support of those around you. As we're in these circumstances of concern, there's that need to look around you. Who is hurting when you're hurting? You have confidence. You have hope in the midst of the circumstances. So whether it's some unfortunate disaster that, betr- that happens upon our cities or our towns around us, or whether it's in your community or your tight family, you have the ability, if your hope is in God and your confidence is in your life with him, then you can love those people and hustle on your mission to care for those people and move your heart in a way that's not natural. That's not how people respond in the midst of a crisis. There's usually fear, so it's a stark difference. But as I put all this on you, I I don't want to make this a burden. I don't want you to feel on this that you need to measure up, you've been failing. I want to say in, in confidence to all of you, God is in control And God has not put this as a further burden on you. He's lived this perfectly for us already in Jesus. We've seen it in his life. When he came and he lived, did he not live a life that ended in pain and tragic suffering and death? And yet he lived on mission, loving the people around him. No different than us. 
Jesus has done that perfectly. So as we come and we hear these commands, our, our heart should be going, yes, I repent. I have had the wrong mindset in this way. I have been too fearful of my life and what might be. But then be encouraged. Jesus has lived this perfectly, and you also now can repent and then love what Jesus has done for you and stand before the Father and say, yes, yes, God, I believe and I repent now. You are in control, and that's going to change the way I can live, the way I'm going to live out my life today, tomorrow, this next week, as some of us will undoubtedly be faced either with the thoughts of incoming death of those around us or our own mortality. We have to have our eyes fixed on what God is doing in the world. He's in control. He loves us. So as I put that out for all of us, I want you to walk and know today, you are invincible until God says your life is over. Let's pray. God, I just pray that you would live us, help us live in light of this truth. God, it's hard. It's not what we think and hear and feel every day. But God, we know your word is true and we know you can empower us to do it. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he's done this and lived this so greatly before us. I pray that you drive us in thankful hearts and confidence of your control. Amen.